When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 142 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast, presented by the iconic Empire Hotel on New York's Upper West Side. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is an actress and comedian who, at the age of 70, recently was hailed by New York Magazine as, quote, the funniest woman alive, close quote, a top star of stage and screen who has two Tonys and two Emmys on her mantelpiece, the great Andrea Martin. It's not a coincidence that Martin currently is starring on TV shows executive produced by Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, NBC's Great News and Hulu's Difficult People, respectively, since her comedy helped to inspire a whole generation of women to pursue careers in comedy. She first made her name back in the early 70s in Toronto as a star of the blockbuster 1972 theatrical production Godspell, of films like Ivan Reitman's 1973 horror flick Cannibal Girls, and especially of sketch comedy as one of the standouts at Toronto's Second City Improv Club, which spawned the sketch comedy TV show SCTV, on which she was a star writer and performer. Over the course of our conversation at the Empire Hotel, Martin and I discuss a wide range of topics, among them, How a woman who insists she's never felt comfortable doing improvisation wound up part of Toronto's legendary improv scene that also included the likes of Gilda Radner, Martin Short, John Candy, Eugene Levy, Catherine O'Hara, Victor Garber, Harold Ramis, and Paul Schaefer. Why Edith Prickley, a fictional network programmer turned bartender who's so old that she can remember, quote, when the Dead Sea was only sick, close quote, became her signature character on SCTV. What makes acting in the theater generally, and Broadway specifically, the thing that she loves doing more than anything else? Why, after having to miss out on playing Faye's mother on 30 Rock, she was so delighted to be asked to play Carol, a woman who gets an internship at the news station where her daughter's a producer, on Great News, the 10-episode first season of which still is rolling out, and a 13-episode second season of which already has been ordered, and much more. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Andrew, thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate it. And to begin with, we always just ask a basic one. Where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? I think people often get this wrong with you. They assume you're Canadian. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I was born in Portland, Maine at the Mercy Hospital. How about that? There you go. And my mom and dad are Armenian Mm -hmm. and, uh, well, they're passed away now. Mm -hmm. And my dad was a self-made man. He only got education up to the eighth grade mm-hmm. and and then B was a very successful grocer and restaurateur and yeah. Yeah. And growing up were movies or TV or theater a big part of your life? You know, I, as I said, I grew up in Portland, Maine, so mm-hmm. I didn't, and I'd never been outside of Portland yeah. really. So I would say the television had a big influence. I remember the Ernie Kovac show, mm-hmm. and I remember the Honeymooners and Disney on Sunday night and the Disney shows and um, How about Carol variety? Burnett. I was going to say, yeah, maybe some variety All shows. All those variety yeah. shows, Jackie Gleason, mm-hmm. I, I, those really influenced me. But it wasn't until I saw Gwen Verdon and What a Great Way to Begin a Love for Theater in Sweet Charity in New York. My father, you know, they knew I loved theater. Mm-hmm. And so that we took a trip to New York and I I saw her and, you know, this was nobody better really in musical theater. You say they knew you loved theater. How did they? How did you know you loved theater? Um, at nine years old, I was enrolled in a little acting program at the art gallery of Portland, Maine. They mm-hmm. had an after-school program. And then my first professional show, I wasn't professional, but it was at the Kenny Bunkport Playhouse, South Pacific. Mm-hmm. Penny Fuller yeah. was the lead in it. And they auditioned you know, local people, and they cast me the part of Liat, because I guess being Armenian was as close <laughs> to Polynesia as you're going to get in right, Maine. Right. And 
I don't know. You know, it was a hobby for me, Scott. Like, you know, kids going to hockey or ice skating. I don't know. It just was, I guess, how did I know it? Maybe, you know, I had a lot of energy as a child, and I think I was always expressive and creative, and I just, one thing led to another. However, having said that, (laughs) never, ever, ever did I think that hobby would lead to a career. I, I never thought that. That's what I was going to ask. Like, how early on did that notion even present itself, that this was something that you could do as a as a profession? I Honestly, I'd say the day I graduated from college, Emerson College, mm-hmm. I took a bus to New York City only because – I heard that's what people did when, I don't know, <laughs> right. if you want to be in a play, you right. got to go to New York. Right. I knew nothing. I, you know, I really grew up in a very provincial manner. And then at those in those days, they had two newspapers, show business and backstage, and there were casting calls. I didn't have an equity card, of right. course. So within two weeks of being in New York and being in a sublet, and I remember it was on the Upper West Side, I got that newspaper because our teachers at Emerson told us that there were two things we had to do. Read the New York Times Arts and Leisure section <laughs> for the rest of our life right. every Sunday right. and to get those two newspapers. And I saw that they were auditioning for your good man, Charlie Brown. And I, I was familiar with it because a lot of plays came through Boston. Right. And as part of the curriculum, we saw a lot of things at the Wilbur Theater and the Colonial. Sure. Yeah. And I knew I was short and I knew I was loud <laughs> and I knew I had a personality. So I, and I, I auditioned and I got the part of Lucy, Lucy two weeks out of college and got my equity card and Pat Birch choreographed it and directed it. The amazing thing about how I guess life works is that had you not fit some of that criteria, right? You wouldn't have gone out for that particular part, which means you wouldn't have then been in a touring production of it, which went to Toronto. It was a touring production. of. It didn't go to Toronto, but it was comprised of Canadians. Canadians, You're okay. absolutely right. And it was a, it, the company started in Canada, but it became the national touring company in the United States. And everybody in it was Canadian except for me. And you're right. <laughs> I fell in love with a boy playing Linus. His name was Derek McGrath. And after the tour ended... I think, honestly, I was too scared to really audition in New York to really assume the life of an actor. And because I used to fly back on the weekends to be with my boyfriend, I was a big fish in a small pond in Toronto, and that was much more comfortable for me. Because I I didn't really know, because it was really new for me, thinking, Mm -hmm. well, I I guess it could be a career. You know, times were different, too. I think in the 70s, you know, kids didn't have access to social media. They mm-hmm. didn't realize they could become a star overnight because nobody became stars overnight. Yeah. So I I didn't know how to part. I, I honestly, just one thing led to another. And I don't think it ever dawned on me that, wait a minute. I, I, okay. I think when, when I got the first Tony in 1992 yes. and I was 45, right. because then I thought, okay, I guess this is, uh, maybe I could have a career in the theater, oh my gosh, but so. I'd been living in LA and raising right. my kids. So yeah, it came very late to me. The, the reality that it really was a profession. And being in Toronto, I guess, because of your boyfriend, then you decided you also independently loved Toronto. You just wanted to stay there. Yes. And because you were in Toronto, I want to try to get the chronology of this right. Yeah. I, before even Godspell, which will come to as a major thing in your life, even before that, you were working with Ivan Reitman on these on these early movies of his, right? Absolutely. So let's see. No, I don't even know if I can get the chronology right. So it's in the 1970s, right, 1971, so Foxy 72. Lady comes out in Wait. 71. Ah. Cannibal Girls comes out in 73. <laughs> and in between, in 72 is when you started, I guess, in Godspell. So, but ah. and probably you would have already shot Cannibal Girls, maybe. Yeah. So you would have shot these two Ivan Reitman movies, which we should note also involved Eugene Levy, right? How about that? So, Boy, our lives have interwoven for our whole life, really. But those movies, was that basically, at that point, was was the hope, I'm going to have a career in film? Or it's just, <laughs> this is just a job, let's do it? You know, honestly, as I said, I 
I wasn't thinking of career, really. I know this sounds terribly naive. <laughs> I was just one thing led to another. You know, there was Good Man Charlie Brown, then I'm in Toronto. And in those days, you could walk into an agency and get an agent. And so I got an agent immediately. I think he must have sent me to an audition with Ivan. And I got the part of Foxy Lady, which mm-hmm. Ivan has, that, that nobody can get a copy of that movie. <laughs> I tried to once from Ivan. He said it's buried in the bowels That's of so my of the, of the basement. But Cannibal Girls, by the way, yes. is a cult, kind of a cult horror film. And Eugene and I won the Best Actor and Actress Award at the Sitkis, Sitkis, I don't know how to pronounce it, yeah, yeah. International Horror Film yeah, Festival, yeah. which has actually become prestigious. But even then, I didn't even know what anything meant. So Because you just were, let's just keep plugging ahead. That's not, it. Not thinking in terms of career. But Cannibal Girls. The thing that I think this might mark the beginning of, which is which is very interesting, is improvisation, which has been a big part of your life. Is that the first time you did that? Yes. Yeah, so Eugene and I, we improvised really Cannibal Girls, the movie. We mm-hmm. improvised that movie. Um, I didn't even, how did I even, yes, I'd never improvised before. Never. I don't know. I I don't even know how it happened other than Ivan must have seen something in both of us. We were comedic, certainly. It's a comedy horror film, a scary one, by the way. I I don't don't know. There wasn't wasn't really a game plan. Do you know what I mean? Sure, no, totally. But I mean, this whole idea even of improvisation, today everybody throws that word around. Everybody does it. But, and it doesn't mean they do it well, but but (laughs) for you at that time, where did you even have this concept of what it was, let alone do it, learn how to know how to do it well. <laughs> I don't think that, I think that's an interesting question. I do not think the word improv was bandied about, not until I was a member of Second right. City. No, I think, oh, I wish Ivan was here to, to, to <laughs> clarify it, but I think he obviously saw in Eugene and I, and Eugene was like a PA, saw yeah. something interesting, came up with a story with his Longtime producer Dan, and I can't remember Danny's last name. That's mm-hmm. terrible. Will come to me. Sure. And I think there was an outline. The I think the movie was made for twelve thousand dollars. It was shot like in twelve days. So I think he must have seen something in our personalities. He knew we were funny, and it was just kind of a, a creation in the moment. Right. But nobody said it's not like Judd Apatow right. said, okay, here we're gonna Im- right, improvise right, right. this film. There, there was nothing like that. Right. We weren't, you know, creating a new form. <laughs> right. <laughs> well so as a result of, of those movies, what changed? Was that was was Godspell a result of you having a larger profile or was it totally separate and because you just had theater credentials? How did this production, which went up in seventy two and today is still discussed because of this unbelievable cast, which I guess, correct me if any of this is wrong, but Godspell had opened in on Broadway yes. in New York. Yes. And then because it was successful, it has all these different yes. offshoots. Ancillary. Yes. So here's what happened. When uh, my junior year of college, I went to Paris and I studied the Sorbonne. Mm-hmm. And at the time, Godspell, well, I don't even remember when Godspell started on Broadway, but I saw it in Paris. Mm-hmm. I went after I graduated I was there my junior year. I studied in, at the Sorbonne, and I've always, and we can talk about this yeah. when we talk about Pippin, but I've always loved the circus and mime. I, I went back after I graduated and studied with Jacques Lecoq, wow. and I saw a company of Godspell in Paris. In Paris so it was already in Paris. It with- was in Paris, and so I moved back to Toronto and knew from seeing it in New York and in Paris that... Dear God, the show was made for me. You didn't really have to sing or dance, but you had to have a bigger-than-life personality. And Godspell, auditioning for Godspell in 1971 or Mm -hmm. two, was like American Idol is today. The lines were around the block. Yes, you know, yes. So even in Toronto? 100%. I remember clearly the auditions because the... Theater was packed with young kids, uh, you know, with not very much experience. I remember Marty Short's audition. He sang My Funny Valentine. <laughs> I remember Gilda Radner's audition. I didn't know them, you know. Right. She sang zippity doo da zippity a, <laughs> you know. And I, because I'm, I was thinking, oh, I'm a, I'm a musical comedy person. I'm going to sing something like a weird song that had nothing to do with being a <laughs> disciple of Jesus. It was at twenty, man, you've had it, <clears throat> and I'm doing bumps and. Grind- and it was so inappropriate. Anyway, I didn't get the part. Right. 
Eugene got the part, Gilda did, Marty and That's uh, Martin Short. Marty Short, yeah, and Paul Schaefer. Victor Garber was Jesus. Gilda Paul Schaefer was our was our music director. This is director. unbelievable. Yeah. Because at the time though, if you listed these names, would they have meant anything to anyone outside of Toronto? No. Victor might have. Maybe. Yes, I, I I hear what you're saying. Maybe not outside of Toronto. Absolutely. So now, of course, like this is the murderer's row of, of comedy. <laughs> but And so, okay, so you didn't initially get it. I didn't. No, I did not. And Eugene and I, of course, were friends because we'd done Foxy Lady. Right. He was a PA on Foxy right. Lady. And then we, you know, the stars of Cannibal Girls, right. these girls eat men. Right. That was the byline. <laughs> So we were cl- we were good friends, and I, I was devastated because unlike anybody in that room who had auditioned, I literally knew that show right. inside and out, having seen it. So two weeks went by, and I was at Vic Tanny's, which was a spa in those days, mm-hmm. like Equinox's today, because mm-hmm. I was so depressed and defeated and rejected, and I was like eating and going to the sauna and then eating and then exercising. And one day I was in the change room and there was a announcement over the loudspeaker, would Andrea Martin please come to the phone? It was Eugene. Oh, wow. And he said, Andrea, the girl who sings Day by Day was fired. And if you were having a party tonight and come to this party and just be yourself, and I think you'd have a really great shot at getting the part. Wow. And I did. And I guess I was funny, and I was cast in it. So I opened it, the, oh, opened the show. So you were there by the time. Okay. Yeah. We, we get that it was absolutely a, a big thing even before it opened. When it opened and, it, and you guys were all together, how much of a success was it? It was a huge success. We ran at the Royal Alexander Theatre, which is a beautiful old theatre mm-hmm. in Toronto. Mm-hmm. You know, really w- was the theatre where all the legitimate yeah. shows came. And I just saw Come From Away there, by yeah. the way. Oh, I cool. saw it at yeah, the Royal yeah. Alex Theatre. Yeah, yeah, I've yeah. seen so many shows there that have later come to um, New York. And then it moved to the Bayview Playhouse, and I... Oh, I don't know how long I stayed with it. You probably know. <laughs> but I don't know, a year, a year and a half. And then... And then... Let me see. I don't know if it closed or if I just left. I can't remember really. But then my career was really kind of taking off. I was doing a lot of commercials there and doing dinner theater. What's a nice country like you doing in a state (laughs) like this with Marty, by the way. And I guess in 1976, there were auditions for Second City. And yeah, if I got these dates wrong. No, that sounds all right. Okay, good. No, but what I want to tee that up because we're gonna, that's obviously a huge part of your life. Today, everybody knows what Second City is, even yeah. people that are not actors or whatever, because it's it's thanks to you guys and generations that have followed. It's That's the place for, for improv, right? But at that time, was Second City a, a big deal? So here's what happened. Yeah. The original company of, of Second City in Toronto was c- comprised of Gilda Radner, mm-hmm. of course, who I'd known from Godspell, mm-hmm. And that was enough, really. I, I think this is what's important to, to yeah. say to your viewers. In the 70s, it w- there wasn't a big, booming comedy group of people, right? Mm-hmm. So there was a very small group. We all knew each other. We were all cast together in the Molson beer commercials. Mm-hmm. And then God's- so we knew each other. And I went to see Gilda in Second City, of which she was unbelievably brilliant and wow was she amazing on stage I you know what would they probably, do just like a nightly or how often would they perform yeah nightly? so so Second City is um I don't know how it is anymore but then you would um uh, create a show from the improvisations at the end of the set show so they were doing a set show that they had written mm-hmm. and then at the end so then the show ends and then people want to stay after if you wanted to stay afterwards, you could see the actors that just sh- did the show improvise basically they're going to do it whether or not anyone's there because it's, it's, <laughs> is that right it's like their exercise almost well you know it was a cool thing to do yeah. right people liked it it was a, it was such a different time and nobody really knew about these shows now on every corner right, there's right, an improv right. thing right so that was the only place it was it was it was a very uh, mixed with the, the rock scene the, the rock and roll scene there as comedy mm-hmm. and rock and roll started out kind of uh, 
they were they blended very well together. So we'd get that audience, that those kids coming in the rock world there, Carol Pope and all so many yeah. other people. And we'd get lovers of comedy and and the theater maybe was 150, 200. So it was always full. Wow. It was a really hip place to go. And so you go and see it because Gilda's in it and, and yeah. near the beginning, which so because they they even proceeded. Saturday Night Live, right? Yes, yes. So what happened is the company, I'm sure I'm going to get everything wrong because I can't remember anything, but it's going to be approximate. Yeah, yeah. So Bill Murray and Brian Doyle Murray were part of that company. Um, Dan Aykroyd was. And when Saturday Night Live started, Mm -hmm. those people were the original in the original company and then there was nobody at second they city they stole them away from yeah yeah a lot of the people from second city in right. toronto yeah and so then they were looking for cast members and i was doing what's a nice country like you mm-hmm. and one of the, the director sheldon patinkin came to see me okay not come to see me came to see the show right. and then the next day asked if i would audition for second city and You know, as I said, I was just kind of going along, sure, or whatever. And I got on stage, and the audition was come through the door as five different characters. (laughs) And then I thought, well, this is really not for me. I have no idea how to do this. And so I I don't know, I came in with a limp, or I came in like I couldn't, like no character development. And I got it. I got the thing. (laughs) And, and, you know, I stayed with it for a long time. That went to... SCTV, but I've never been comfortable improvising, although I've done it all my life. Oh my God, yeah, that's yeah, amazing. Yeah. So basically, maybe what they respected there was that you were willing to try it, even though you weren't necessarily comfortable, right? <laughs> well, I think what it seems to me, people that are successful yeah. in Second City or in improv are people that kind of are organically funny yeah. or have personalities. That, so I certainly had that. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I observed the world and with humor, I think, or or my go-to place is humor if right. I'm scared. Right. And I was scared all the time. So there I guess, go. yeah. We had Eugene and Catherine on, t- on this podcast when they were promoting Schitt's Creek. Oh, my God. Uh, and that was fun because we, you know, went over some of similar territory here. And so people who listen to that should definitely listen to this <laughs> and who are listening to this should listen to that. But one of the things that Catherine said, as she recalled about the way Second City worked, was something about you're supposed to say yes and in response. to. So is, can you talk about what that actually means, that you have to just be open to whatever's thrown at you? Yeah, so the way you, and by the way, I think Catherine O'Hara, I don't think there's anybody better doing improv. She and said the I, same about you. Oh, that's crazy because I, you know, not, yeah. but we were good together yeah. and I, I just worship her yeah. and that show is so funny mm-hmm. and I worship, you know, they're all really, really close friends after yeah. all these years. I think that's, that's the remarkable thing, oh, really. So nice. Yes, so, you know, the way to keep a scene alive, obviously, is saying yes. Like if you ask me a question right now, well, you can ask me a question. Let's okay. try one. Okay. When will you next be on Broadway? Or will you be coming back to Broadway? I don't know. And that kills the comment. Yeah. Yes. So if I said, yes, of course I'm going to come back to Broadway. Um, I'm not sure when that's going to be, but I'm going to definitely. Right. And that, yes. It so just you, keeps it you going. You just keep it alive. Right. You know who's uh, great at that? Whose line? They're so great. I mean, that they keep that show alive for like an hour by saying yes to the most outrageous right. things. They're so skilled. That's a really interesting show to watch, I think, when you want to yeah. see a great improvisation but with really you, skilled performers. It, it yeah. just feels when you're doing it, though, that – and this is – actually, this is really – in light of Pippin, this is going to be a funny <laughs> metaphor or a comparison, but – does it feel like you're out there walking on a tightrope, essentially? <laughs> yeah, it's a different skill, right? I mean, one's really physical and one's all mental. But just the idea that it, you, walking you, without you gotta be Annette. quick, you gotta yeah. be agile, yeah, and you gotta be, you gotta <laughs> have some innate. Ability. Yeah, I mean, I guess it doesn't feel like so much life and death. Like right, I could right, have right, fallen right, right, from right, my partner's right. arms, but. What did, what did I really think when I was doing yeah. it? Here's, here's what I thought, that I'm surrounded by people all with different comedic abilities. And John Candy, you know, I work with him on stage. And, and Dan Aykroyd, who was brilliant at the songs that we would make a song, which mm-hmm. was an improv. And John Candy was always brilliant with character improv. So I guess I thought very early on, 
I'm never going to be great at this, but here's where I'm really going to be good. Once we come up with the scenes, I know that every night when I do the show, it's going to be... It's, I'm going to be good at that because right. I took acting very seriously, more seriously than improv. So I guess I must have signed off on the fact that I don't have to – I'm never going to be as great as they are. I'll do the best I can. I'll try to be funny. And I don't know. It didn't feel competitive in a strange right, right. way. Yeah. Well, did, did things start to feel competitive as a, as a group when, I guess, in 19 19- – 75, I think, Saturday Night Live, as we refer. So they now start taking off. And all of a sudden, you've got easy access for the whole world to go on a Saturday night and just get this stuff for free on their television. Mm -hmm. Was that almost an existential threat to Second City? And did Second City, it was the response, we need to do our own version of this. So the answer is... Uh, yes to the second mm-hmm. and <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no to the first. Okay. I, I, You know, we were in Toronto, right, without any real sense of what's happening in New York mm-hmm. or L.A. or, And that's how we did SCTV, actually, also with no – in a vacuum, kind of in a bubble, mm-hmm. right? I think what happened is the success of Saturday Night Live became evident and then CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Company, and Andrew Alexander, our producer, thought – Huh, maybe we'll do our own version and that's how SCTV Cuz you already had your cast we already had up our and company. running. You got it. So SCTV for 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 a reminder for <laughs> folks, this was four camera sketch comedy show shot in an underground studio in Edmonton, organized around a fictional bad TV station <laughs> in Mellonville. So we're going to the decisions made, we're going to do SCTV. How does that affect your day-to-day life. Does this mean that you're no longer doing Second City or this is on top of Second City? Did some of people from Second City go over and do this and not others? How did it actually affect people's lives? Boy, I wish Marty Short was here, who has it kind of one of those memories that can remember what I wore in 1972. Wow. Let me think about this. I think Here's what I do know. Mm-hmm. When we were shooting Second City TV, SCTV, I was performing at Stratford. I was doing Candide at Stratford um, Shakespeare Festival, and I was also doing Private Lives with Maggie Smith and oh Brian Bedford. God. So I would do a show and then commute to Toronto. So, you know, my heart was always in acting, mm-hmm. right? And. Oh my goodness. So I can't remember so much of the details. I, I know some of the scenes that we did in SCTV came from Second Mm -hmm. City. Um, certainly, uh, Perini Sclerosi and English for Beginners, Dan Aykroyd and Val Bromfield created that. Piece and Edith Prickley was created yes. on stage. Um, this is your most frequently played character for that, that yeah. of yours yeah. on the show. But but so you go over your people that were in Second City who now were a part of Second City TV, SCTV. Yeah. You, Martin Short, Eugene Levy, Catherine O'Hara, or was Catherine? Yeah, she did right. Yeah, Catherine O'Hara, John Candy, right. Joe Flaherty, Dave Thomas, and Harold Ramis. Harold Ramis. Yeah, and so and we started it in Toronto. We started the show on the CBC, and it wasn't broadcast in the United States, but it became successful. First thirteen episodes just locally. Yeah. Oh my God, was it local? But wow. some of the funniest stuff we ever did. But and like, you were making a living doing this, though. It was like a, it was not like community <laughs> TV. No, well, because when you say thirteen, when that. you say locally, I don't know if. I like, oh. you know, because you're and you're also working all this other, yeah. all these other jobs. Yes. I can't believe it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were making a living because, you know, it was Toronto in the 70s. You didn't have to be making a lot of money. Right. Now it's like one of the most expensive oh cities in the yeah. world. But, you know, we roomed with each other. Right. and But we were. We were getting paid. I remember getting paid well. Yeah. I, I never, yeah. I mean, we certainly got paid better when NBC bought it. Yeah. And then we were going to Edmonton. Then we were shooting it in Edmonton. Then that became the first started 30-minute show. And then it became a 90-minute show. Wow, that was a lot of material to fill. Every week? Yeah, Is yeah, that, yeah, yeah, every week. When, when did it air? Is it, was it also Saturday night? It, it aired, I do know this, it aired after Saturday Night Live. So I think it oh. was on at 1 or one thirty. Re- I mean, the people that remember the show right. watching it then yeah. were all stoned. That is for sure. <laughs> so that's why there are so many musicians that's that know great. the show. Like so many. Right. Yeah. Okay. So on the show, you did a lot of 
great impressions and impersonations that people can still track down and find. They're absolutely out there. Sophia Loren, Bernadette (laughs) Peters, Barbara Streisand. But as you referenced, the one that I think was the most frequent was Edith Prickley, who was network programmer turned bartender who is so old she can remember quote when the Dead Sea was only sick <laughs> close yeah, quote I don't want it right. I gotta remember some lines here yes. yeah I walked into the walked into the hotel I saw some animal activists out there they said to me Edith do you know how many animals had to die so you could wear that jacket I said do you know how many animals I had to sleep with to get it <laughs> and this is stuff that maybe another important thing we should do here is clarify what improvisation actually means because it doesn't necessarily mean that you're coming up with that on the spot when it's live on TV or whatever, or when it's on, you guys go through it, you work it through, and then you figure out what worked. And then, so would it be correct to say, the the example we've I've discussed with somebody else, that yeah. it kind of helped me to understand what improv is. In On the Waterfront, there's this famous scene where oh. I guess she drops her glove okay. and he picks it up and puts it on his hand. And all the method actors in the world say that's improv they didn't stop the scene he put it on he kept going and it's a beautiful moment as it turns out because we had a chance to speak with Eva Marie Saint they did that in the rehearsal she accidentally dropped it he put it on and Kazan said you know what do that in the scene so it's not that when it was being filmed for for real and so does that also apply to what you do with, with when we talk about improv and comedy? It doesn't mean we're necessarily seeing on the fly you come up with something. We're seeing that the product of the of the work. Of a writing before. room. Yeah. Yes, but on SCTV, there was there were both. First okay. of all, it was never live. We taped everything. Okay. Tape, there's a word. Yeah. We taped everything. <laughs> but we had 90 minutes to fill. So quite a, every week... Dave Thomas and Rick Moranis would improvise on the spot Bob and Doug McKenzie. Mm-hmm. So they would improvise that. And I would improvise a lot as Edith Prickley because we had to fill so much. So, you know, I there, there was a... Johnny Carson showed this scene when I performed on his show many years ago when I was a guest in 1981 because my son was born. So that date, I do remember, he was three weeks old. It was Edith Prickley with the Rhythm Ace. And I improvised a lot of that on camera. Uh, So we wrote for uh, months and then in writers' rooms, but with only seven writers and us. It was a very small group of people. And then we would perform those sketches on a tape 90-minute show, but oftentimes we couldn't fill it with material, so we would improvise. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, so, and just one more thing about Edith. How did she come to life? What was it that inspired this particular, and why was it a character that you returned to more than others? You just felt at home in that character? (laughs) Why do I return to it? People like it. I like doing Mm -hmm. it. She's ageless. Mm -hmm. I could do it at 20, Mm -hmm. and I can do it today, Mm -hmm. and I don't think you know, I, with the same kind of energy. So I don't think you have to, had to be a certain age. And I always like playing older people. I felt comfortable doing that, mm-hmm. I guess. And and I like her spirit. And to be honest with you, it's really, it's a, a part of me, that kind of joyful, enthusiastic, positive mm-hmm. person. And it's a great thing to access because sure. I'm not always like that. <laughs> so it's a great thing. So here's how it started. After a show one night in Second City, somebody from the audience yelled out, do a scene on a parent-teacher, parent-teacher meeting. So we went backstage, and as we would do, uh, talk very quickly about Mm -hmm. what the scenes were going to be. And then we would grab costumes from the costume racks there. And the costumes mostly were comprised of things we would get from Salvation Mm -hmm. Army. or In those days, there was something called Cripple Civilian, which is so politically incorrect, (laughs) dear God. It's, yeah. And... So Catherine had brought in her mom's faux 1950s leopard jacket that her mom didn't want anymore and a faux hat, leopard hat. So I put that on quickly. I'd never put that on before. Mm-hmm. And then I grabbed a pair of black glasses, horn rim glasses, and I put red lipstick on. Didn't know what I was going to be. And I came to the door of the, she was the, Catherine was a teacher and she opened the door and she said, looking at me, you must be Mrs. Prickly. <laughs> and I said, and the voice came out, that's right, dear. Edith's the name. Prickly's a game. <laughs> ha! 
And then I walked in, and uh, I still can fit into that jacket and black wow. skirt. You and have that, it still? Good. I still do. Good. That's that should go to the Smithsonian. That's God an awesome, bless Catherine awesome for that. Mo- yeah. So Catherine, you know, is responsible for so much in my. That's so cool. Life. I didn't I know. realize that. That's how that started. Yeah. Okay. So for your work on that show, you got. An Emmy nomination for Best Actress in a Variety Series, and you won two for writing. How did that work? So when they would they recognize individual sketches, or would that be the whole group was considered the writers as well? Yeah, so different shows were nominated. Gotcha. One year, I think we were the only people, and you should check this. All these different episodes? Oh, yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we won, and I can't remember, of course, the episodes, but... All of us got up on stage. There weren't that many now when you see, oh, my God. God, That's crazy. 150 people. But then there were, I think, seven writers and us. And so there there weren't, there were like, I don't know, 14, 15 people that went up. And um, yeah, so we have two two Emmys. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. One last SCTV question is, I'd love to try to pinpoint what what it was that made that show Mm -hmm. so special. And I know that for you, this was also... A challenge, not because there were a lack of things that made it special, but I remember reading something about your memoir, how you saved that chapter for last because you want to, you know, get that right. And I think you actually consulted with all the others who were part of it. And so what was it, though, that looking back now with, what is it, like 30, 40, Oh, well, my years. gosh, 37. Well, the last show was 1983, so right? So we started while. in 76. Yeah. yeah I mean... We're talking about doing a documentary, but we all say, well, nobody will be alive that remembers the show because it was like over 40 years no, ago. I mean, that would be amazing. But but as you remember your experience, yeah. why was it, it seems like one of the creative highlights of, of your life and everybody else who was a part for of sure, it? For sure. For sure. I, I can't imagine anybody in, involved in that show would say anything different. Mm-hmm. We were innocent. We were starting out. There were no distractions. It was just Toronto. Then it was Edmonton. There was no competition. There were nobody putting up, putting us up against each other. And so what that did was we had to rely on one another. Mm -hmm. That's a very special thing when you create something. We had to rely on each other for the writing, for the scenes, Mm -hmm. you know. Catherine wrote a lot of things that that she and I did together. And and most importantly, we had to rely on each other for the laughter. So we would, when we weren't in scenes, we'd be out on the set watching and supporting or suggesting lines and... I don't know. We were all really different from different walks of life, and I think that that was important. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. You know, our careers were formed with SCTV, and the fact that we're all still good friends today, I think, would suggest that there was something very pure about the mm-hmm. experience, and that's why I didn't want to write a chapter and exploit that purity. Right. And I felt that it was up to everybody uh, in the cast to write their own chapter. But I knew I couldn't write right, a book right, right. without... So I did. I called every single person. And I taped everybody's rem- memory of it. And, you know, it w- I just really wanted to honor them and um, not use them to for filler for a book. No, that's yeah. great. Well, I hope the documentary happens. That would yes, be terrific. I uh, think it will. I ah, do. Awesome. Yeah. Was this... Did I hear Scorsese would be involved? You did, yes, yes, that yes. That is pretty awesome. It's so, awesome. and it's still like, how? Where does it stand at the moment? It's just really scheduling. Yeah. It's really hard. Well, it's not just really. <laughs> I think we have to come up with some ideas. Right. Other than that, other than what the documentary will be, you know, we all have. You know, we're different people. We've all gone in different directions right. in our life. Some of us have written more. I've certainly acted yeah. more. You know, I come from. Yeah, uh, wish I wish you were doing it with all of us. You know, I've always come from the summer stock mentality: of give me an outfit and we'll put on a right, show. Right. You know, other people are much more. You know, Gene's a real perfectionist. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want to do anything unless it's really written out and mm-hmm. really, you know, very carefully thought out. And Marty and I come from the school of give me a hat and right, you know. Right. And John Candy, may right. rest in peace, mm-hmm. was definitely more that. Mm-hmm. So. I think we're uh, brainstorming ideas, how much um, new material we want to put. I think nobody really wants to just do a panel and talk. I think we want it to be much more creative. And when you have Martin Scorsese, I think you'd be a fool to... My thought is, whatever you want to do, Mr. Scorsese, just tell me where to stand, is, is what I think, yeah. Well, so when your time at SCTV 
uh, was over, was it like you said, about 81? 83, 83. I think. Because I, I remember that was, I was pregnant with, I can remember everything yeah. according to my yes, children. Did, sure. I was pregnant with my second child. It was 1983. And, we, and that's when I was nominated for Best Actress in a Variety because mm-hmm. I was only two months pregnant mm-hmm. and nobody knew. <laughs> and I didn't win. But yeah. um, I do, I remember. So that was the, that was kind of the end. We went to, did Cinemax for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Well, over the so over the next few years, you obviously are now raising your two Kids. children. Yes, in Pacific um, Palisades, California. In California, yeah. right? Uh, also, you know, popping up in in some really interesting movies and TV shows. I we should just mention uh-huh. Club Paradise, <gasps> Wag the Dog, Hedwig and the Angry Edge, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Yeah. But it's my sense. I'm pretty confident about this that theater has always been your kind of greatest passion. Is that fair to say? I'd say that's really true. And, yeah. and you made your Broadway debut, <laughs> as you mentioned, only you were already 45, yeah. 1992. Yeah. My favorite year, win a Tony for your first time out. Yeah. And then another one followed. You're still, you're now the all-time record holder <laughs> for most Tony nominations in the category Best Featured Actress in a Musical with five, six overall. You won twice. Why over the last 25 years has Broadway been the place that you want to keep coming back to? You know, there's nothing like Broadway. There's nothing like the community. When you work on, when you rehearse something for weeks and weeks, you do become a family. Television and film doesn't allow it, although I do feel with great news because it's a a small ensemble and people have asked me how I felt about it. It really felt like I was doing a play. Mm -hmm. And I just, we loved each other and we were on one big set in the newsroom. So I don't know. And then, you know, Tina Fey executive produced it and she comes from improv and Tracy Wigfield wrote it. And she comes from, I want to say groundlings or maybe, mm-hmm. um, you, uh, um, upright citizens. Mm-hmm. So we, we all kind of came from the same background. So it felt, we were, hurt. I don't know. It just felt like doing a play. And so to that, in that way, it was like SCTV yeah. and doing a play. So theater. I think early on growing up in Portland, Maine, being Armenian, not really feeling like I fit in, honestly, mm-hmm. I gravitated to, toward, you know, acting and theater. And I think that that sense of um, camaraderie, collaboration, family, I just got in, it's cellular, you know, it just, it's where I feel the most at home. And I have to tell you, even after all these years, when I go into a rehearsal room, there's nothing, nothing can compare with that. The excitement of unwrap, especially in comedy, like I did Noises Off last year. And just the, how to solve a, a comedy moment or how to do something physical or how to make something honest and how to create something and you mentioned Act One before yes. we started talking, and this was George F. Kaufman, Moss Hart, who Moss wrote Hart, the book, yeah. yeah, and just three characters you're playing in a drama, in a play, not yes, a right. not a musical, not right. a comedy, right? And James Lapine directed it, and we did it at the Lincoln Center, and it was the first time that I'd ever created characters. I'd nobody'd ever, you know, brought Played that book to people, life, yeah. and ah, it was terrifying and so exhilarating, and. I don't know. I'm I'm so happy in the last few years of my life that I allow myself to take challenges that I might not have, and not might not have. I definitely didn't. Because, when you were younger, you're yeah, saying. Yeah, I, I don't think I would take those kind. You know, there's a good thing about getting older. You realize you have less years left, so you say, well, literally, what am I waiting for? Okay, right. it's now or never. Right. And so the combination of love, curiosity, excitement, enthusiasm I have for the theater now doesn't seem to be oppressed by the fear or sabotaging I might have done when I was younger. And so Act One gave me both of that. Well, and that was fabulous, but never was what you're talking about more apparent, I think, than in Pippin, which was which was Tony number two. This was 2013. <laughs> you're playing the title character's grandmother. And can you talk about what you did in that show for somebody who didn't see it at in your, <laughs> I guess, late 60s that 
most people, you know, a third <laughs> of your age would have been scared to do and something that you wouldn't, as you say, would not have done much earlier in your life. Well, I don't think I would have dared to have dream that I could do it. I think that's where people fall short mm-hmm. in their life is that they don't dare to dream. So when I was offered the part of the grandmother in Pippin and Irene Ryan had played it originally, the that number, Time to Start Living, was a, what do I want to say, a specialty act, I guess, right? And and so I, Diane Paulus offered it to my agent, called me, mm-hmm. and I said, I want to speak with Diane. Let me really, really think about this. My first reaction is, no, I don't want to do that. But honestly, let me, because I love Diane, mm-hmm. let me really listen to this music. And I listen to, you know, when you are as old as I, my dear, and I hope that you never are, you can woefully wonder why, my dear, through your cataracts and guitar. <laughs> and I listened to that song and I thought, oh, my God, this is such an opportunity to talk to people and how to transform their lives my age and know that it's that life isn't over mm-hmm. and that at my age I there's still more that I want to do and I knew Diane wanted to do it as a circus theme so I said to her I've always loved Fellini and Giulietta Messina who was married to Fellini mm-hmm. if you will consider creating a circus performance for me and I don't mean gaggy or with mm-hmm, gags mm-hmm. or with nets or I, I mean a real cert, like what would Bertha be would have what would she have been like in her 20s and I met with Gypsy Snyder who was our circus choreographer the brilliant Gypsy Snyder I said I want to do something really traditional I don't want to do whatever people seem to be doing I just want to do something traditional so she said what about a stationary trapeze and so the both of them came together because those two people and the choreographer uh, were so collaborative and open, but particularly Diane, that she was just open to my dream, really, to a vision that I had, and she let me do it. And next thing you know, you're 12 feet above the stage <laughs> yeah. for, what, like 10? Well, the, your, your character yeah. comes in, but but just kind of steals the steals the show in the best sense. I mean, it's amazing. And and so I think we left out the part that you were a little afraid of heights. Yeah. Which you obviously had to overcome. But uh, I mean, that whole idea did you never had any any hiccups while it was while you were doing that in the show? No, you know, I was really determined to be a circus performer. Yeah. I just held it in such high regard and I loved the the acrobats that I yeah. was working with and you know I just I just loved them and respected them and their work ethic and discipline and was so I, every night they would you know train before I every single night while I did that show I would come in an hour and a half early and train wow. with them I took it very seriously because I really respected the art form and I took it really seriously because I wanted to tell to Pippin the my grandson that life wasn't over and that he had to follow his passion and dream. And so I I sang that song to him like I would my own children. Mm -hmm. So really, it came at a time in my life, that piece, where Pippin... I don't know. You know when there's there's a certain moment in your life and everything comes together. Yeah. Not everybody has it. And I was so fortunate. I guess it's called confluence yes. or something. Yeah. yeah. And I, I had that. It was... It will... You know, when I talk about it, I, I want to cry all the time because I... I don't take for granted how special that time was in my life. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, the other thing that can be kind of magical, you know, it can be when, when things like that come together, but also when the product of things that you did decades ago reveals itself in the present, which is what it seems like the whole relationship with Tina Fey is. Because oh. let's just quote, Tina Fey, I mean, logically enough, <laughs> is one of your biggest fans. She wrote the forward to your memoir, noting that she loves you so much she wants to marry you. And she recently <laughs> told an interviewer, quote, when my husband and I got married in 2001, one oh. wedding gift was a full set of VHS masters of all of SCTV. It was the greatest thing we'd ever received, close quote. So when did you and she first meet and even, 
you know, realized that there was this admiration. I, I imagine you might have been familiar with her work as well. <laughs> so, I mean, this yeah. is, but it might have come as a surprise that you had such a, a big fan in this it person. Did. It yeah. did. And then, you know, I am fortunate enough to, we just wrapped yesterday th- the third season of Difficult People and Amy Poehler. Yes, the other. So, what the that's heck? That's amazing. I knew if I stuck around long enough, I'd have a fan. <laughs> Those are two Let's big see. ones. I think the, the how I. I didn't know Tina, but mm-hmm. when they were doing 30 Rock, they asked, very early on, I was asked to play her mom. And I was doing Young Frankenstein at the time, and uh, I couldn't get out of my matinee. We were in previews, so I, I couldn't do it. But at the end of 30 Rock, after the all those years, they she asked me back. And I, it was the first time that I'd met her. And then... Let's not gloss over that. How disappointing was that? Did you think you'd kind of missed a big opportunity when you were not able to do that? Yeah, I did, actually. Yeah. I did. I but you know you have to honor what your are you gonna do? Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks yeah, is telling me right, so give right, me some right, jokes. Right. Over the years, so many of that generation um, of, of a comedian that Judd Apatow and Amy mm-hmm. and Tina and oh gosh, I, in the younger generation, I guess Jimmy Kimmel and mm-hmm. Marty keeps reminding me that so many people grew up with Bill Hader. So uh, Conan O'Brien is a huge fan of SCTV. SCG. Yeah, so that generation grew up with SCTV, and I, you know, I will just keep saying that we had no sense of anybody watching it. Mm-hmm. Again, we were in. <laughs> the bowels right. of the theater in Edmonton, the <laughs> right. TV set. So we didn't know. So it, nothing, it wasn't a reality that anybody was watching, nor did I think that these gifted people would. So I guess in my heart, I believe that at one time, after hearing this for many years, that I would work with the people that had been coming up to me saying, you shaped our comedy career, you shaped our life. And so I'm so lucky to have, to work with two of those women now. Because right now, obviously, the you, you know what had been the slightly missed opportunity with 30 Rock now manifests itself with the opportunity of great news. So let's just say Tina and Robert Carlock, who both were the, the EPs of that, are the EPs of great news. It's Tracy Wigfeld, who uh, had been also involved with 30 Rock. She's the, I guess, the the primary driver of Great News. Can you talk about how you first heard about Great News and and if it immediately appealed to you in the same way that, you know, you you saw that there was something you wanted to do with 30 Rock? Was this a similar kind of thing? You knew right away or... Maybe not. You know, so over the last few years, Tina and I had socialized. We, we Seth Rudetsky is, a, yes. um, yeah, and then I asked Tina if she'd read my book and generously, insanely generously, because we really didn't know each other that well. She read it, and I know she read it and gave me those beautiful quotes. So we had, you know, gotten to know each other socially, and then she called me and asked me if I would meet with Tracy Wickfield at Cafe Luxembourg, because Tracy had an idea for a show. And I said, sure, 100 percent. Gosh, yes. I met with Tracy, loved her. She told me about her mom, the relationship with her mom. Which is the inspiration. Which is the inspiration for the show, Great (laughs) News. And then Tina and Robert joined us. And they, you know, were very general in their discussion of it. I didn't know what was going to happen. They had a ball at brunch. And then two months later, I was offered the part. The script was hilarious. It was hilarious. It was, uh, how could I ever turn up a part like that? And then I met her mom and I was even more inspired. Yeah. Because her mom, from what I understand, would show up at the set of 30 Rock (laughs) and whatever. And just, and, and just, you know, there are certain lines in in this show (laughs) where again, just to, you end up joining the workforce for the first time in your sixties at the same place where your daughter is, is working. And there's, Obviously, some clashes about that. But one of the lines was, quote, I quit my job to raise you. You're all I have in the world. Well, except for your father, but he's boring. So, I mean, there's stuff that I think it's great because it will play with uh, many with multiple generations of people. And it's just funny is funny no matter what. But how do you like the whole idea, though, of as somebody who is used to doing a movie where you go in and you know, all right, it's going to be 24 days where today we have to do this and then tomorrow we have to do this and you get through that versus theater where you know I'm going to be doing more or less the same thing for hopefully months and months. Here, 
the lifestyle of doing a sitcom yeah. where I think season one ends, ends up being 10 episodes, yeah. but you know, it's going to, it's now going to be continuing on. Do you like the requirements and demands of, of that type of a schedule that the, the type of schedule that comes with it? Well, Great News was very special. It, it was shot at Universal, and I was in a little hotel. Both my sons live in L.A. Mm-hmm. So I'd ride my bike. Nobody does that to Universal. Wow. I And I was in almost every scene. So I just signed off on it. And frankly, you get into a rhythm when you're in a lot of the scenes. It's not like a film where there's so much waiting. So in, in that way, it felt like a rehearsal all the mm-hmm. time, you know. I loved it. They were very long days. They were five days a week. But we grew to be so close because mostly we were all in the scenes together all the time, right? Who are you working the, the most frequently with? John Michael Higgins, mm-hmm. Brie Gahilan, mm-hmm. Nicole Richie, Horatio Sands, um, Adam Campbell. Tracy was in the, on the set all the time. We were together all the time. It wasn't piecemeal-like film uh, at all. I really enjoyed it. And there were a lot of laughs, don't forget. So it wasn't like I was doing a procedural Right. Crim- crime show where somebody's dead. Every- right. Oh my god! So you know, it was just it was just a lot of fun. I'm just thinking, even though from the point of view of you're going to be spending, you're going to be shooting that much. There's that many lines, even. Yeah. I, again, it's. I wonder if it's a different learning process than when you're doing a show. You learn your stuff before it goes up. You know, before it opens, and you make sure you maybe grow into it a bit. I would assume. Yeah. With film, you know, it's you've got. You've got maybe however many scenes in a day, but here it just seems like the volume must be more than what what you're normally having to deal with. It, it's true, and I think you really bring up a good point. Look, I don't want to kick a gift horse in the mm-hmm. mouth because I love doing sure. great news and I love doing difficult people. You know, as an actress, for me, you know, I, I it's more. I don't second guess myself in my, as much in theater because we've had a six week or 10 week rehearsal period. And so every night it, it's dependent on the audience reaction if it's a comedy, but I really am in the character. I know the lines. So it allows for more exploration on stage, right. adjusting something according to uh, the moment in the moment. And I don't have that doing television, especially the way television is done now very quickly. So it's a different... Is there wow. an audience when, where you guys do this? I'm no, trying to no, remember. Yeah, no. Not an audience, no. And same with difficult and people. And same with difficult people, yeah. right. So... What do you have to do? You have to work another muscle, I guess. You have to also let go of perfection. Right. It's it's just different muscle. But when you, I mean, obviously, <laughs> it's it's gone over so well that they first of all, obviously, just the fact that it's been renewed already. Yeah. But also, I don't know if you read reviews or uh, columns or things like that, but the response has been great. And and right now, at, at a time when you know broadcast networks are struggling to find. Yeah. An audience. Know, an audience. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Or at least, you know, they have their, they still have the size compared to cable or whatever, but it's not like the 90s when they right. were just pl- churning out hit after hit. They struggled. And so, and I think NBC in particular, since 30 Rock, has been looking for a, another kind of hit comedy <sighs> in the same vein. So, what's been the, the reaction from what you've been able to feel, you know, being in the middle of the storm? Can you still. Are you still able to appreciate that people have really responded to this? I, I you know, it's it's certainly new. We've only had five shows or five shows on the air, right? I think people genuinely like it. I think, look, I think it's funny. I think there's really funny jokes in it. I think, like anything. You know, it's going to grow. It, as as I say, maybe this is our rehearsal. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I you'll mean, grow into it, yeah. you know, you don't forget when you see a play on Broadway. They have either workshopped it. They've been out of town. You know, they've had months and months and months. We met, and then we got into hair and makeup. <laughs> so right. of course, there ha- there has to be some time for us to gel or to get the rhythm right. right. But I think it's cast beautifully with beautifully comedic performers. And I think Tracy Wickfield is a, she's 33 years old. She, she Tina Fey was her mentor and she learned well, mm-hmm. very gifted. So I think if the audience will stay with us and give us some time, 
like they had to with 30 Rock. Tina keeps reminding me that took it took while. a long while. Of Seinfeld, so many shows. Yeah, that almost didn't make it, Seinfeld. It's amazing. But, you know, audiences aren't like that anymore, and they want it instantly. And, and so do I, by the way. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, everything is just quicker. But I think, God bless Bob Greenblatt for giving us 13 more shows. And I think there's something... As you say, different demographics, daughters who don't, who are annoyed by their moms and moms who are codependent (laughs) with their daughters. And I think the television station is a great workplace. And uh, I don't know. I, I have high hopes for it. I think, but I'm only looking at 13 shows, not thinking past that. Right, right. Well, so one final question is this. There are now probably more female comedians, comedians, I don't know what the right term is these days, but than at any other time, more famous working female comedians than at any other time that I'm aware of. I believe that's the case. Would you before we move any further, do you think that's an accurate premise? No. Are you talking about actresses that do comedy? Are you talking about stand-up? I would or? say, I think, I would say across the board. I think, you know, when you think about stand-up, you've got, you've got your Amy Schumers who have yeah. started a whole wave of people on TV. Yeah. You've writing. Mindy Kalen and, yeah. And Tina and Amy yeah, and all yeah, of those. Yeah. You've got even with Late Night, it's not enough, but you've got Chelsea Handler and, you know, just people making... Yeah. Regardless, it seems like it's moving in a positive direction there. And a lot of these people, as we've said, are people who credit you and your generation with kind of trailblazing for them. So I guess a question I have when you look at the the scene today and which you're obviously still extremely involved with, but if you could snap your fingers and change it so that you were starting out today versus when you did, would you or is there something (laughs) special about having having gone through the trajectory that we've just spent an hour discussing. Oh, my God. (laughs) Honest to God, if I had to start out now, I don't think I'd have the perseverance. I I don't think I'd, uh, you know, I don't think I'd have the kind of ambition. I I think, I don't think I'd have the career that I, I really applaud all the girls that are doing it now. There's so much competition and with so with social media, everybody has to have a real strong voice. Uh, You know, I don't know. I don't know. I just think I was really lucky to be in Toronto to work with SCTV to, you know, get some uh, acting chops doing that. I really do not believe that I would have I don't have. I don't think I have, to have the personality to fight like so many people have to. Today. And why change it? It's gone great <laughs> as it was. So yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah. Why look back? Yeah. Listen, I just um, want to keep doing it, and okay. I I'm so happy there there are a lot of women in positions that will hire me. So that's cool. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This is really a treat. It's always to, I can't wait to see you back on stage. But I know you got a few things you got to do in the meantime. So I, yeah. I appreciate this. Oh, thank you. Thank you. What a joy to talk about myself for one hour. <laughs> Thank you.